Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. This week marks 41 years since the death of Terry Fox, but four decades later, his legacy lives on through his foundation, which has helped raise more than $850 million for cancer research. We speak to Terry's older brother, Frank Fox, about the enduring impact of his marathon of hope. On the eve of the one-year anniversary of the deadly and devastating fire that destroyed the small BC town of Lytton, we speak to those who called the area home about their memories of that day and their thoughts on the very slow process of rebuilding that community. We also talked to a fire expert who co-authored a report on the Lytton Fire and how communities across the country need to better prepare and mitigate the threat of wildland urban fires. But first, the province of BC announces a proposed $150 million settlement with Purdue Pharma Canada covering all provinces and territories. It's been reached for the recovery of healthcare costs related to the sale and marketing of opioid-based pain medication. It's the largest settlement of a government healthcare cost claim in Canadian history, and we find out what impact it will have. Well, first up tonight, we've spoken a lot about the opioid crisis on this show, the devastating impact that it's had on individuals, families, and entire communities across this country. It has meant healthcare systems, too, have had to shoulder the expense of responding to the ongoing crisis. Well, today, word that some of that money, some, will be recuperated. British Columbia's Attorney General David Eby announced a proposed $150 million settlement with Purdue Pharma Canada, covering all province and territories, has been reached for the recovery of healthcare costs related to the sale and marketing of opioid-based pain medication. Eby says that it is the largest settlement of a governmental healthcare cost claim in our country's history, and that the proposed settlement was accepted by governments across Canada. Now a plan is being worked on to determine how the money will be divided based on the impact in each province. The province of BC launched a proposed class action lawsuit back in 2018 against more than 40 drug companies on behalf of all federal, provincial and territorial governments with the aim of recovering health care costs for the, quote, wrongful conduct of opioid manufacturers, distributors and their consultants. Here's David Eby. We expect and hope that this settlement with Purdue Canada will lead to settlements, further settlements to recover provincial health care costs. This is one step among many that our government is taking to ensure that we are addressing the overdose crisis on every front. I want to note that this is only the beginning. We're committed to aggressively pursuing litigation against the other opioid manufacturers, distributors, and their consultants who put profits before people. That is BC's Attorney General David Eby speaking earlier today. Well, joining me now is Radar Morgerman. He is the lawyer handling the class action cost recovery litigation for the province of British Columbia. So he knows this subject all too well. Thanks for your time tonight. No worries. So just, I guess, first, the the most obvious question, the significance of today's announcement, it sounds like a big deal. Um, It it is a big deal. It's It's an important step in a big case. And the big case is about recovering um, money that the provinces and the federal government are spending to treat uh, opioids. So it's a big lawsuit and Purdue's obviously a, a big defendant, but it's only one step in a big lawsuit. What was determined exactly? To, what is this settlement about? Right. So, so the, the province uh, started a class action on behalf of all of the governments. And uh, that class action is moving forward in the courts. We've been uh, to the Court of Appeal a couple of times, and it is actively being litigated. Um, One of the main defendants in that class action was Purdue. 
And in a narrow sense, this case settles the action. So all of the governments have now settled their case with Purdue. That's the, that's the narrow uh, result. What was Purdue, at least in terms, as far as this lawsuit was concerned, what was Purdue um, accused, maybe it might be the wrong word, but what was Purdue uh, accused of having done? Right. So, so, so the lawsuit basically alleges that the manufacturers and distributors of opioids um, uh, misrepresented their safety and benefits. So they overstated the safety and they understated the risk of opioids. That's, that's kind of at the core. It's obviously a complicated lawsuit, but that's what it is at the core. And Purdue was one of the main brand sellers of opioids uh, through the class period, which is sort of starting in the, in the mid to late 1990s and running through till the present. So what you have is you have Purdue. Uh, you may have read about them in the news. The Sackler family is behind Purdue. They're a major opioid manufacturer. So they're one of the, uh, the people the province says uh, um, through this alleged misrepresentation caused the opioid crisis. And this was through OxyContin, I believe, was, was Purdue Pharma's uh, brand. That, yeah. that's, that's right. That's, that's what they started with. They, they sold other brands over time, but OxyContin was, was one of their major brands. And as you know, the, um, Purdue and its related entities in the United States um, have been consumed by a large bankruptcy proceeding. So there is a, a huge news story uh, that has swirled around the bankruptcy of Purdue and its ability to um, control all of the lawsuits that it faces in the U.S. by going bankrupt. And that then played out as well in Canada because Purdue Canada was uh, a chess piece in that sprawling bankruptcy. So the, the case has a lot of complexity. Uh, short point is this is a settlement that wraps up the case against one important party, Purdue and its related entities, uh, for a significant amount of money that will be used to uh, treat, we call it abate, the opioid crisis. Um, but as I say, it's one step in, in a really complicated set of facts. What has uh, what? How much money will be will be given out here, or how much? What is the what is the uh, the damage or the the penalty here, and and how does it get meted out between the provinces and and the different levels of government who were right. involved in this? So, so I'll start with with the just the language. So, a, a settlement is is based on consent. Purdue hasn't admitted that it's done anything wrong. It it pays the settlement money uh, and it gets a release from the lawsuit. That money then has to be distributed between and amongst the governments, and they uh, will construct a formula to do that that will be based on their opioid spend, essentially. So what are they spending and what are they spending it on? And then they'll get their share of that settlement fund. Um, and then, uh, and this again is an important point, the governments are going to address this crisis with or without money from the industry. Uh, this is a really important crisis. Uh, as you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, I don't, I'm looking for the right words, but it's yeah, I mean, public health emer- epidemic. Right? Yeah. It's public health emergency has been used, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. And so, and so what it, what it means is the governments are going to be looking after it, whether they, whether they recover or not, 
but this helps them look after it. This provides funding that they can then use to, um, you know, to treat the opioid. $150 million sounds like a lot of money. I know that in terms of just the overall amount of damages that were being sought, it's actually quite small, and it certainly doesn't match the amount of money that different healthcare systems are spending coping or trying to deal with the opioid crisis. Uh, how, does, how, did you, how does that figure reach the $150 million? Right. So, so that's a, that is a really good question, because as you point out, the overall cost of the crisis uh, across governments is likely measured in the many billions and $150 million is not many billions of dollars. I think two, two observations on how you reach a settlement. Uh, one is um, you do the best you can in the circumstances that you have. So you have to assess how strong your case is. You have to figure out whether the bankruptcy is going to potentially wash your case out and, and you might get nothing because you're competing with other entities. So this is a compromise. You, you figure out how strong your case is. You, you, you then get the most that you can in the circumstances. And these are very difficult circumstances. So that's sort of one piece of the answer. The other piece of the answer is $50 million is a lot of money. It is It will be used to treat crisis. And then the third piece of the answer is only one of the defendants. So there are other large manufacturers and there are large distributor defendants. And so we are getting cooperation from Purdue. Use that to pursue all of the other defendants and hopefully increase the pie I'm speaking with Radar Morgerman. He's the lawyer handling the class action cost recovery litigation for the province of BC. The province today announced a $150 million proposed settlement with Purdue Pharma Canada covering all provinces and territories uh, to recover healthcare costs related to the sale and marketing of opioid-based pain medication. When we come back a bit more about what lies ahead, as um, Radar Morgerman has pointed out, this is just one small piece of a much larger puzzle, a much larger um, legal, legal foray. And uh, we'll talk about where this heads next after this. My guest is Radar Morgerman. He's the lawyer handling the class action cost recovery litigation for the province of BC. There was an announcement today from David Eby, uh, the Attorney General of British Columbia, about a $150 million proposed settlement with Purdue Pharma Canada, covering all provinces and territories um, that has been reached for recovery of healthcare costs related to the sale and marketing of opioid-based medication, pain medication. Uh, we've been discussing what this means. It is a big deal. Um, uh, it's certainly, certainly money that will be divvied up between the provinces to help pay for treatment uh, and handling of the opioid crisis in this country, but just a small piece of a much larger puzzle. So what happens now? As you mentioned, this, this is a good first step uh, in this process, but it is, as you pointed out, a much larger process when it comes to the provinces trying to recoup some of these costs that they've been spending on uh, opioid opioid addiction or opioid crisis-related healthcare costs. So, so that's exactly right. The, the lawsuit, if you think of it in the groups of people who are named, you have the brand name manufacturers, and that are companies like Purdue or, or Janssen, uh, Johnson & Johnson's subsidiary um, or related company. Then you have um, uh, generic manufacturers like Teva or Apotex. And then you have distributors like McKesson. And within the opioid industry, each one of those groups uh, is alleged to have played a role in setting in motion the crisis. 
Uh, you also have the consultants to those people. So in the United States, for example, there was discussion about a consulting firm called McKinsey, who has done a bunch of work with various people, uh, allegedly opening doors and reducing uh, the barriers that used to exist uh, to the use of opioids. And all of that, uh, all of, all of that litigation uh, is currently in the class action in BC. Um, we are actively litigating it. I was in the Court of Appeal for three days uh, in early June, having arguments about the shape of the case. And, and we'll have arguments about the constitutional reach of the class actions legislation. We'll have arguments about class certification. And if we win all of that, we'll have a trial. And the trial will determine who did what and whether it was wrongful. And if it's wrongful, how much do they have to pay? Uh, along the way, just not to cut you off, but along the way, uh, uh, and I've, I've said this to all of the defendants, the governments um, are rational and will settle if the settlements are rational um, because this crisis is clear and present and money in hand to treat the crisis now is worth a lot to the governments. You've compared this in the past to things that folks might be more familiar with. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the opioid crisis, but you compared it to, our, I think, or, or at least um, likened it in the past to sort of mass public injury uh, actions against things such as tobacco and asbestos. Absolutely. Uh, this, this case is in that tradition. And like the tobacco litigation, there's special legislation that's been passed by the government to help facilitate the case, make it possible uh, one of the things about the tobacco litigation that we're trying to avoid in this case is it has been running for, uh, I think, nearly 20 years. Um, and in this case, we're really trying to put our running shoes on and move quickly, understanding the limits that we face in, in the legal system. Uh, you can't force something beyond its natural pace, but you can push it as hard as you can. So it is a crisis. The opioid crisis is a crisis like tobacco or like asbestos. In, in fact, it is in many ways more insidious because of the loop that addiction creates and the destruction that addiction causes beyond just the individuals into society. So to, to take that, then this settlement today uh, as a first step, what does it represent? What might kind of impact may it have on the broader effort? Um, so I, th I think I'll, I'll, again, break this into numbers in my head just because it's easier to answer that way. Um, number one, it sends a message to all of the players in, in the case that the governments are serious, that the dollars are significant, and that we will be pursuing them forever if necessary to get to a just result. So that's, that's one piece of this that's very useful. The other piece of this that's very useful, as I said before, is that the crisis is here it's present, it's costing money now, it needs to be addressed now. And so getting our hands on the settlement funds is helpful. And then third, part of the settlement involves cooperation. We now get to ask Purdue for documents and information that might be relevant to the rest of the case. So this is a really important step in sending a message to all of the players and institutions that are touching this problem. Uh, that it's real, uh, that it's a, uh, that it's a big case, and that it's it's worth paying attention to. And has much changed since the period with which this is uh, these are allegations are meant to have taken place. Uh, I think the answer to that is is yes. If you're if you're being accurate 
uh, when you track the science, the prescription opioid crisis. So the crisis started as a prescription opioid crisis, and then it has morphed into an illicit opioid crisis. And the lawsuit alleges, and there's good evidence to show that those two things are connected to each other, that the only reason we have the illicit, the illicit crisis is because of the prescription crisis. But you have to be really accurate and careful in how you're describing things because the, the current immediate cause on the street is more the illicit drug than the prescription drug. But allegedly, and there's, and there's good arguments for this, and hopefully we'll have a trial about it one day, it's the prescription drugs that caused the monster that's now um, swallowing people through the illicit drugs. Radar Morgerman, thank you so much for, uh, for explaining the, this case. And I gather this is just uh, the first step. It shall continue. Thank you so much for your time tonight. It is. Thank you very much. I remembered 41 years ago yesterday, I was about, uh, I guess, 10, 10 or 11, uh, when Terry Fox passed away. Time does fly, but um, it was such a sad day. I guess we'd followed the Marathon of Hope, those of us, especially kids, I think, but everybody. I mean, there was, there was a huge outpouring of support for Terry right across the country. But I think if you were young, there was something magical about what he was trying to do. Um, so he was a great inspiration to all of us, I think. Um, he died of cancer in a hospital in New Westminster, BC, one month before his 23rd birthday, 41 years ago, yesterday. He, of course, had lost a leg before uh, to cancer before embarking on his marathon of hope run across the country. Here are some of the sounds of that journey and Terry himself. Maybe I won't make it, but if it's up to me, I think I can do it. The sounds of Terry Fox. Uh, I think you can imagine, you can picture that image uh, in hearing that sound. He raised nearly $25 million to fight cancer during that uh, Marathon of Hope, which ended in Thunder Bay after more than 5,000 kilometers. But far beyond the $25 million, over the past four decades, thanks to the work of so many in his memory, including his family, through the Terry Fox Foundation, they have raised more than $800 million worldwide for cancer research in Terry's name, particularly through the annual Terry Fox Run held across Canada and around the world. And this year, of course, after um, no in-person for a while, it's coming back. Uh, more than 650 communities across the country will take part in September. Well, joining me now, it's a pleasure to welcome Fred Fox, Terry's older brother, and uh, the Manager of Supporter Relations at the Terry Fox Foundation. Foundation. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, great to be with you again. Thank you for inviting me. What, was, what, is the, what is it, in terms of the legacy yesterday, do you stop to think? It's been 41 years. It's, it really feels like time has flown by. I can't imagine what it must be like for you and the family. Yeah, you know, y- yesterday was a, certainly a day of reflection, as it is every, every year on June 28th. And, you know, just listening to the um, the audio there, uh, you know, Terry's footsteps just, uh, you know, it, it sends uh, chills and, and gives me goosebumps whenever I hear that. And, 
you know, as an organization, we, we, we marked the day yesterday. Um, we're doing the Terry Fox Foundation is, is continuing what Terry started uh, 42 years ago in, in the summer of 1980. And, uh, you know, a day yesterday, a day of reflection and uh, knowing that uh, Terry would be so proud of not only Canadians, but people around the world who have uh, uh, responded to his, uh, you know, need and want to uh, help other people. Fred, how did you, how did everyone manage to keep it going? Because, you know, there's so many opportunities where we're sort of these, there's so many times where these opportunities are lost. And yet in Terry's case, it just seemed that everyone around him, everyone who had supported him through his, uh, through his, his marathon of hope. And then through what happened afterwards, that there was this huge momentum to keep, to keep it going and you, and you succeeded. How did that happen? You know, I think it obviously started with Terry and, and, uh, you know, people saw as Terry was pounding out those miles uh, and kilometers every day, 42 kilometers every day, people saw that Terry was not doing it for himself, not to be rich or famous. And there were so many people that were backing him, uh, Isidore Sharp, uh, the Four Seasons Hotel, and, and, um, you know, so many other people, uh, whether it was Ford or, or Adidas. And, and when Terry was forced to stop in Thunder Bay, Canadians responded. And when Terry came home and, and was uh, dealing with that second uh, diagnosis of cancer, Canadians just stepped up and they, you know, got Terry to that, that goal of raising a dollar for every Canadian, as you mentioned, almost $25 million. And, and it's just, it just continued every year. Canadians wanted to continue what Terry started. He said when he was in Scarborough, even if I don't finish, we need others to continue. It's got to keep going without me. And so it's been, a, a you know, so many people um, in Canada over the years, new generations uh, that have continued this. What was it like just for you back then, for the family back then, when, when, when your brother announces, you know, I'm, I'm going to run across, I'm going to run a marathon a day. Um, it, it must have been, it must have been, I mean, I'm sure you th- thought he could do it or maybe, but, uh, it must have been quite the announcement. I mean, now we look back and in hindsight, you think, well, of course he's Terry Fox, but he was just your brother, Terry at the time. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Terry and I are only 14 months apart in age. I'm older. And, uh, at the time I wasn't living at home, uh, off doing my own thing and, um at this at that point he had started training running with his artificial leg an artificial leg that was designed only for walking not for running and and but that's what who terry was terry was he was an athlete he was determined he wanted to do something he told mom and dad that the reason he was training he was running he was training for the vancouver marathon that would take place in may of 1980 he did a run with uh, our brother Daryl, his friend Doug Allward, and Prince George, B.C., in Labor Day long weekend of 1979, and came home and after that and told Mum that uh, he wasn't training for the Vancouver Marathon. He wanted to run across Canada. Mum, being very protective of all of her children, got a little upset with Terry, told me he shouldn't do that, maybe run through B.C., finish in Stanley Park. Terry's simple answer was, Mom, not only people in BC get cancer, people right across Canada do. I need, I need to start in St. John's. And uh, all of our family was obviously very supportive. We, we had dances and all kinds of other fundraisers to get Terry and Doug to Newfoundland to start that big adventure of theirs. And yet here we are the, all these four decades later and there's still Terry Fox runs all across the country. Uh, it must be really, it must be grat- gratifying would be the wrong word. It must be satisfying to the family that his legacy has endured so strongly and that every year, again, this year, we're going to see it again for uh, the Terry Fox runs all across the country. The kids know exactly uh, what this story is all about. You know, and, and yeah, 
um, in 2020, we were preparing for the 40th anniversary of, of Terry, uh, you know, Terry's Marathon of Hope, the 40th anniversary of the Terry Fox Run. We were hit with the pandemic. Uh, we went virtual in 2020 and then again last year. And, you know, this year is going to be a celebration. People coming together and gathering at their communities, uh, their community Terry Fox Run sites, whether it's in a small community village or, you know, big cities like Vancouver and Toronto and um, it's going to be a big celebration and, and, and that doesn't happen without so many dedicated supporters, um, that are, that show the same perseverance that Ter- Terry did 42 years ago. They're, they're committed to what Terry started and, uh, um, we wouldn't be able to do it without the volunteers and supporters right across Canada. I mean, just looking at the, at the sheer amount of funds you've raised, um, to help fight cancer, it, it must have made, it must be making a difference. How does that work? How do, how do you, uh, how, how have you seen the impact of that work? Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. Uh, that's what Terry wanted. Terry found that, uh, you know, when he was first diagnosed in 1977, um, at the age of eight, of 18 years old, he, he realized, did some research that not a lot of, government money, not a lot of private money was going towards uh, cancer research. It wasn't really something that was happening a lot. He wanted to impact that and change that, and he has. Um, and he, Terry could have easily said, you know, I want to find a cure. I want to uh, I want to improve the outcomes of osteogenic sarcoma, the type of bone cancer that he had. But he, he before he passed away, he knew there would be Terry Fox runs continuing to raise money for cancer research, and he wanted all cancers to be um, uh, researched on. So, you know, we see so many so many improvements, the like diagnosis, uh, the survival rates of so many different cancers, whether it's breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, lung cancer, blood cancers. The outcomes are so much better today because of the research that's happening in Canada. Some of the best researchers in the world we have here across Canada. And, uh, you know, Terry impacted that, so, uh, you know, back in 1980. So this year I asked you about the Terry Fox runs already, but again, it's going to be a celebration. I imagine there's some 9,000 schools that are going to take part. It's happening in many countries, uh, many, many events. So this year really will be a celebration, the celebration that had to be put off for that 40th anniversary of the beginning of the Marathon of Hope. Yeah, and you know, and that's one of the, the the things that I enjoy most of all is uh, I get to travel a couple you, I, before the pandemic. It's been three years now since uh, I've been able to travel. I'm looking forward to doing that again in September, uh, visiting schools. Uh, and like you said, nine thousand schools, new generations of kids. I can remember my first schools I visited in the early '90s, and there were still kids in school who, like yourself, would have, you know, you experienced, uh, witnessed Terry through the media or however it was, Terry running in 1980. Today, when I go visit school, some of the parents and teachers weren't born 42 years ago when Terry was running, you know. So it's amazing, 9,000 schools, kids are inspired by Terry, they're learning about somebody who who showed that one person can make a difference, that uh, anything is possible if you try. You just need to be a little bit more determined than maybe the next person, as Terry was. I guess that's what you would like listeners to know about about both the family and Terry's legacy tonight, is just, is just that, I suspect. 
Yeah, you know, Terry, Terry talked often that he was just an average, ordinary kid. He, did, he wasn't the, you know, people think he ran a marathon every, every day. He must have been an amazing athlete. And Terry would be the first one to say, no, I wasn't. I was average. I had to work harder than anybody else. I had to work harder to make the basketball team or the soccer team. Um, and and that that's how he got things done. He wasn't the best student in class. And it's one of the messages that I give when I visit you know, classrooms and gymnasiums across Canada, that Terry was no different than any one of those students in the school. Um, I guess, is there anything else planned for this year? I know there's lots of memorabilia still from the Marathon of Hope that are in storage. You've thought of, uh, you've thought of putting that. And I had a listener ask, of course, because this always comes up. I, I am asked this quite often, the $5 bill. Do you have an update on whether we're going to see your brother finally grace the $5 bill? Because we keep talking about it. Yeah, you know, we I've been um, working with the uh, Bank of Canada. We haven't been in touch for for a, probably a year now. I think um, you know that's uh, the, the final decision. I think we're down. It's down to five uh, potential um, people who could be recognized on the five dollar bill. That's with the finance minister now. I think in that process. And but I think um, the government uh, has been uh, you know dealing with other things the last couple of years with the pandemic and all of that so no update on that but um yeah it's it's uh but that's just one of those things again whether it's statues or schools or roads across canada people want uh, terry to be recognized and that's pretty cool yeah there's a statue right here in victoria where i am of course that i always stop and look at uh, every time i go by because it is it is a um yeah it's always always brings back memories of those uh of, of 1980 to be honest fred fox thank you so much for, for bringing us up to date i i look forward hopefully we'll speak again perhaps come september when everyone's getting set for the terry fox runs this year in person uh and thanks so much for your time tonight i really appreciate you sharing your story great thanks a lot i uh, look forward to that next time <laughs> Well, speaking of anniversaries, it has been one year, it will be one year tomorrow since a wildfire raced through Lytton, B.C., the small village of about 300 people in southern B.C. was destroyed in the fire. Two people died, many were injured, dozens of homes were destroyed. The fire was the tragic culmination of a week of record-setting heat that certainly helped spread that fire. Lytton had seen a national record-breaking 49.6 degrees the day before after reaching 47.9 on Monday and 46.6 on Sunday during that infamous heat dome that settled over the, much of the province. The Lytton Wildland Fire was reported at about 4.38 p.m. local time south of the village and moved quickly. Within hours, 150 homes had been destroyed. Here's some sounds of people on that day. I got a phone call from emergency alert and I, I didn't believe them, you know. I, I said, I looked out the door and there's fire everywhere and my house burnt down right after my daughter picked me up. Most homes and structures in the village as well as the ambulance station and the RCMP detachment have been lost. I also understand that some residents have not been accounted for and their location is currently being investigated by the RCMP. That was Public Safety Minister Mark, Mike Farnworth there uh, a year ago tomorrow, uh, assessing or at least reporting on what had happened. Uh, the Insurance Board of Canada estimates the damage total at $102 million. One year later, though, Lytton still looks very much like it did back in early July of last year. The process to rebuild the town has been slow. No homes have been rebuilt yet. It took 10 months for the debris removal to begin. Governments and insurers are still hashing out costs. The cleanup is 
complex. There is the need to protect indigenous history that lies beneath the area. And to give you an idea of how slow that is, when Slave Lake, Alberta was destroyed back in 2011, or large parts of it, foundations for new homes were already being poured five months later. We also still don't know the cause of the fire. The BC Wildfire Service and the RCMP are still working on that. Well, joining me now with more are two familiar names. We've spoken to them before. Jennifer Toss is a Lytton property owner who's been working for months now to try to get work started on uh, rebuilding what she lost in Lytton. And Dr. Rosalind Miles is also a Lytton resident and a member of the Lytton First Nations. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Rosalind, let me start with you. Just your memories of that day uh, a year ago tomorrow. Uh, it was complete terror. It was it was a very traumatic experience, and yeah, it was. Um, a lot of people didn't have cell phones, and so we didn't know how many people had passed away. And my heart goes to the Chapman family, and uh, it was one of the most destructive experiences of my life. How did you hear? How did you find out what was happening, and where were you when it happened? Um, well, it was, it was happening on Facebook. I was in Lytton the day before, um, but it was you know the hottest place in Canada. And actually left the next day for a vacation in Cayucit. And then I could, I could hear people um, chatting on Facebook about the fire. And I thought, why isn't there anything going on about telling people to evacuate? So I went on to the Lit Infestations Facebook page and started telling people what I was hearing secondhand. Because, um, of course, like the band office was lost, the village of Lytton office was lost, and there wasn't a lot of communication. Um, so it was just, it was horrible to, I, I have two homes in Lytton. And um, um, the elder that lives in one of my homes downtown, she doesn't have a cell phone, and I was thinking the worst. Yeah, Jennifer, you too would have been there the day before, right? That's or that right. weekend? I was there the weekend before, that's right. And, and how did you learn of what was happening, and, and what did you do? Because you had tenants in those houses in one of the homes, right, that you own there? I did. I had a few tenants. I got a call from one of them, my friend Jen Pans, who lives in my house, Um she said, are you sitting down? Your house is burned down. I had been following the George Lake wildfire, so I was getting texts from her periodically through the day and the night before with updates and photos. And she said, uh, oh, it's, you know, what did she say? Um, There's a train car on fire on its way to Lytton now. That's fancy in a text. And then she sent me a text of the Fraser Valley Road Report that had um, a stream of comments about people that had seen a train on fire on its way to Lytton. And um, I then, so a few hours later, I got the phone call. It was my last day of work. I got home, was ready to relax and head to Lytton. And I got a phone call. Are you sitting down? The whole town's on fire. Um, I had small talk with um, her for a few minutes. And then I was like, because she was already evacuated, she had seen the flames. And I said, do you know where um, Henry and Don are? They were two of my tenants that are elderly and um, have mobile, like aren't very mobile. And um she said, oh, no idea. It was chaos. So I phoned another um, friend of mine in Lytton that's worked with those tenants before, and he was hysterical. He had just seen his dogs die in front of him. I'm, he's been on the news a bit. He ran in the house to grab his cat, came out, and his truck was engulfed in flames, and his two dogs were in it. And he was just screaming half in French. And I, I won't say it on the radio, but it was um, it, I couldn't um, even have a conversation with him. So I actually phoned the tenants. And this elderly gentleman picked up the phone and he said, um, oh, hi, Jennifer. Like, uh, how are you doing? <laughs> like, oh, my God, Henry, the, the town's on fire. And um, don't hang up. Don't hang up. Go look outside. He, and he comes back in. Like, he comes back to the phone. He said, oh, there's explosions everywhere and smoke. I can't see anything. 
And I was on the phone with him for 11 minutes before um, he was out of the house. And it took me four days to find out that he was safe and his wife um, in merit. But yeah, like what Rosalind just spoke to, not knowing um, people were safe for quite a few days was awful. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable, and and my heart obviously are. You know, there was there were lives lost, there were people injured, but it feels like it could have been so much worse. Um, what was Absolutely. lost that day when, when when the smoke had cleared? What was lost for you, Rosalind? Well, uh, all my childhood memories. <laughs> so when I think about like you know Memorial Hall, that's where my mom and dad were married, and um, you know the band office is where I worked, and I, I think that um, you know just knowing like. You're everyone from Lytton Frustration Village of Lytton, you know, there's thousands of people who enjoyed our downtown core, our health services, our RCMP. So we think about, you know, Lytton as the heart of, of the canyon, of the Fraser Canyon, and for it to kind of be just burnt right down to the ground, uh, there are just so many things that are irreplaceable. And, um, and, and the part for me that was the most damaging was the effect on the elders and the seniors. Um, you know, I understand that over 11 people who, who had to evacuate have passed on since then, you know, and, and really? they have they have no homes. And, and uh, you know, one of my close friends, you know, Christian James, she lost everything. You know, she left really quick and left her cat inside, and she has no insurance, and she's elderly. And Margo Soffer, who lived in my house, you know, she she lost her home, too. She was planting daffodils every, you know, it's a place that I own, but it really was her home. Um, you know, it's just hiring for people to plan the retirement and, and to have to be, you know, have to evacuate so quickly and never be able to go back, you know, and um, it's just devastating. Yeah, Jennifer, you too, your tenants have not been able, I, I gather they haven't been able to even resettle really those who, who had to leave your home in Lytton. That's right. None of them have found permanent housing. And um, I'd also echo what Rosalind said about our elders that have been lost in the shuffle and um, are all over the province. And, you know, there's just no sense of urgency from the village. So it's very disappointing. And yeah, yeah the I tenants mean, think, are, yeah. are totally displaced. And my son has Snapchat and all of his friends in Lytton, he said after the fire, he was looking on Snapchat and they just like spread out across the province like a like an explosion almost of, of people's characters, avatars or whatever on Snapchat. And you can see to this day that these um, youth are still scattered all over the province. Like many of the residents. I mean, I know one of yeah, the, like the, the overriding. No one, yeah. 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 It's such I know a the overriding theme of this. It is. I know the overriding theme this year is just how much, how little has changed since early well, July know, in the town the, of Lake, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the, the major problem that I see, well, I was in charge of the Cisco fire in 2017, and it was a military operation. Like, people came in and responded. They created headquarters. There was emergency operations center. Um, you know, the government was really there to support us, and, you know, EMBC and um, things. You know, um, all everyone who worked in Lytton, lived in Lytton, were evacuated. They did not have the capacity to respond and to operate an emergency center. And for them to leave it up to um, both governments, Lytton Frustration Village of Lytton, and um, was really um, disrespectful to the people who've lost everything. And, and so many things that um, could have been done within the first few months were just neglected. And it brought in opportunities for people that felt they could 
um, take lead where they shouldn't have taken lead. Um, or people feel that they, they were qualified to help with our, re, our recovery, and, and they weren't. And so we, mm-hmm. it was a time that we really needed experts to be there to support our, our people. And because that didn't happen, we lost that momentum, and then we had the mudslides. And so um, it's been a really the worst-case example of what recovery should look like for yeah. Canada. Yeah, Absolutely. We'll take a quick Not break. A we'll take a quick break. We'll take a quick break. I'm really interested in talking to you more about this because, of course, looking forward, it's the anniversary tomorrow. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on what may lie ahead for Lynn. It feels like there's a bit of momentum now, but I'll be back with Jennifer Toss and uh, Rosalind Miles after this. Ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Lytton fire, we're speaking with two people who um, who were very close to Lytton. Jennifer Toss is a Lytton property owner, and Dr. Rosalind Miles is also a Lytton property owner and a member of the Lytton First Nation. We were talking just about that day, the devastation uh, that it wreaked, and also just how everyone had had to scatter, how so little has been done now to rebuild the town in the year. You know, often, uh, Rosalind, you know, one-year anniversaries can be times of hope. Uh, you know, people can go back to the town and see that there's things happening, that things are beginning to look like they used to a little bit, or at least maybe even better to some extent. I, I get the impression this year, no one's going to feel that way tomorrow. Yeah, I think right now we're focusing on, on the idea of renewal. And uh, I know tomorrow I'm helping host an event at Sun Valley Islamic School um, with the youth and the students. Um, we're doing a time capsule piece and... Uh, from 10 to 4, and uh, it's an honor to be there for the children and for the youth who watched their town burn down. You know, they, they, you know, it was just a horrific experience, especially for people on the west side who were safe on the other side of the river, but saw things just be destroyed and not knowing what happened. Um, so I think, you know, I've always been hopeful, and, you know, there's been so many times where, you know, we wished for things to come sooner. You know, we've had, the, for Village of Lytton, we have the news for the support of federal and provincial government, um, for Lytton First Nation Indigenous Services Canada been there, but there's been a lot of politics behind the scene. Um, we haven't had enough community engagement. Um, you know, the people who have who have lost their homes, um, I'm the lucky one. I have two homes that did not burn down. Um, you know, the, but I still, the one house downtown is not livable. You know, like no one can live in it. And it's just, it's a really hard situation. I can't even go downtown without, like I can't work on my grass. You know, they're saying that there's, toxins in the grass and so I'm thinking like, well it's high grass how can I cut down my yard um, but I'm the lucky one right so um, there's so many people who are living in trailers they're living in very small motels um, people whose insurance is running out um, for living in these certain kind of you know like jobs people lost their jobs because you had to leave the area you know people's businesses and and places of work burnt down um, so it, it really was a life changer um, for so many people, and so having hope, yeah, right now it's just um, there's still some negative things happening for us. You know, um, uh, I was just heartbroken when I heard they they filled in the pool. Um, you know, there's a big fundraiser for the for the pool. Um, there's just some things we don't have a community plan yet. We don't have infrastructure plans yet. So there's it's hard to have hope when you don't see um, things being really built or you don't see a really huge response you know the, the town's been shut down on weekends you know um so for every second weekend you can go and visit your property if you want to go work in your yard or go get something um so there's been a lot of loss of attachment to the people who've really who've been really suffering i really feel like there's no urgency and i just wish that we had something really organized for people to come together to talk about 
what does recovery look like? What does renewal look like? How, what are what are our ideas? You know, of having a thriving community, a sustainable community, something that's that's safe for climate change. You know, um, there's been talks of the bylaw, of course. However, we need we need to have people at the table, both sides, Lytton First Nation and the Village of Lytton, and the five First Nations around us that have lost it, lost their town as well. Kanaka, Siska, Skapa, Nickman all lost their town as well. Um, we've had groups of people coming in and trying to represent us when they don't even live here. Um, so it's, it's definitely been an opportunity for some people to take advantage of the situation. And, um, and that's been horrific. Yeah, it felt like there was an opportunity here to really get something good started. And as you mentioned, oh, yeah. Jennifer, again, the momentum just keeps getting lost. How about you, Jennifer? I know mm-hmm. you you know, you know still have properties right in town that you haven't been, that yeah. been destroyed, that you haven't been able to get back to. Uh, how will yeah. you approach tomorrow? Is it is it a day of, of, of at least cautious optimism? You know, we've spoken a few times then, and I've gone from optimistic to um, depressed and optimistic again and depressed. Um, I, I've told people before, it's really difficult to get past the anger part of the grief cycle um, for a lot of the reasons that Rosalind just alluded to. Things like the pool getting taken out without any sort of heads up or communication with the village right after the Fort Barron's winery fundraiser. Um, the pool was insured. Sure, there might be a recreation center coming, but, you know, that pool could have been replaced. You know, in my opinion, it looked, uh, I have photos of it. It, it held water. There must have been a way to, to remediate it. But um, that just speaks to the communication. The lack of progress um, has been depressing. There's just no ways around it. And um, when Rosalind said, you know, people representing us that don't even live there, that really resonates. We have a whole recovery team all over the province in Kamloops, Kelowna, Victoria, um, and these people aren't vested in the in the village like people that live in the village would be. It took us five months to get a phone line that um, that worked where a resident could phone the village. It took um, well, we still don't have a village office. There's you know the the meetings are being held in Kamloops. Um, the sound still has issues when they have their village meetings. There's things that are just like oh, a year later we we shouldn't be dealing with this sort of thing. So um, cautious optimism, no. I would go with um, <laughs> still, I, I'm, in, I'm back in the depression <laughs> cycle. Um, every time I go there, it's, it's quite upsetting, the lack of progress. So, yeah, it's really, really difficult to be optimistic. We have so many um, third-party people, like, again, that don't live there. We have all these corporate interests that have sort of um, gotten their nose into the recovery effort. And because we lacked the capacity, I think, um, the village allowed these entities to sort of um, corporate lobbyist type um, entities yeah. to, to to drive the narrative, and and that starts with like the misleading at coad, you know, walking on sunshine as a as a um, yeah, as a soundtrack is was just heartbreaking for so many people, and to be shown at the hockey games and that, and there was never you know the full hundred thousand. I don't know if we've even received that. The Insurance Bureau of Canada, the Municipal Insurance Association, Nexi Homes, the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, Fire Smart, Safer Homes, and now we have this wonderful idea. For God knows how many millions they're proposing um, solar earth solutions is, and shift clean solutions limited is proposing solar sidewalks for our village. We have 239 yeah. people. We can hardly keep our pool going like staffed in the summer and they want to put in solar 
um, solar sidewalks when we don't even have our water systems and our sewer systems up and running. They took down all of the hydro pools in the village that were perfectly fine. There was a lot that were undamaged, like not touched. They cut them all down because the wires were going to go underground and then figured out that um, that was cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. And um, so they decided again to replace the pools exactly where they were. <laughs> it's these it's kind been... of decisions that are being made that just break our hearts. As, you know, you need a pl- it, it sounds, it sounds like... E- Sounds like a year later, everyone's in dire need of a plan. That's what the exactly uh, no official uh, community yeah, plan. We finally have yeah, a bylaw. Yeah, and I, oh. having a plan, but also having the oh. right people at the table. Like yes. the federal government right. gave a commitment letter to um, NMTC that's not even a legal entity on July. Rosalind and Rosalind and Jennifer, I'm running out of time. As always, it's oh, lovely to have right. you on the show. I'll be thinking of both of you tomorrow, and I hope when we speak next that uh, there is more progress. That you're in uh, higher spirits. And thank you again for your time tonight. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben. Well, with all, with all catastrophes, uh, as is the case in Lytton, there is always the undeniable thoughts of what if, what could have been done differently to prevent it, for instance, or at least limit the damage once the fire began to spread. Well, a report released last month into the fire by the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction looked into those questions and also made some recommendations on how not just Lytton, but all communities across this country can better protect themselves against the threat of wildfires, specifically areas, uh, so-called wildlife, wildlife urban interface areas where you know people live on the edge of, of wilder areas of forest, so to speak. Um, because that threat feels like it's increasing. 60% of Canada's communities, according to the very same report, are located on the wildlife urban interface, land that is on the edge of a forest, shrubland, or grassland. Alan Westhaver spent 35 years with Parks Canada. He's now a wildland urban fire consultant. He's also, also co-author of that report on the Lytton Fire published earlier this year by the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. And he joins us now from Salmon Arm. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Good evening, Ben. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. I guess just someone who knows his his wildfire as well, just your assessment of the ferocity of the Lytton Fire. Well, I have to say that the, the situation was extreme, but it was not exceptional. Um, we were we were asked to go to Lytton to look at uh, to do an examination to, to to look at the wildfire itself, but also how the homes ignited from it and how the fire managed to spread through the community, the three Lytton communities, and what could be done to prevent it, and in particular, how could Lytton rebuild to be more fire resilient? And that was a key conclusion that you know that the conditions when we say they were extreme, there was a there was definitely high winds, and it was the fuel, the forest, and, and the community was very dry. And, and that's essentially the, the two things that that set the stage. Um, those conditions aren't really all that rare, especially with the advent of climate warming. But uh, what we did see was a pattern that's repeated uh, virtually in every other wildland urban fire disaster in the States or Australia or Canada. And uh, this is is what we're hoping that we can avoid in the future. One thing I found interesting uh, listening to to you talk about this and reading your report was that I think a lot of us pictured this sort of wall of flame emerging from, from the forest and taking the town with it. That's not what happened here. 
that's exactly right, Ben. That is the, the primary perception that people have, that they think of fire uh, much as, uh, as we would a landslide or a tidal wave that just it's a force that engulfs communities. It's irresistible. Uh, but that's that's not the fact. That's not true. Fire is really uh, it's a process, and fire can only go where the conditions for combustion are met, and that's where there's fuel that's r- readily ignited, and that's the situation that we face, as you point out, in in many Canadian communities and what we call the wildland-urban interface or that situation. It's it's not it's not the big flames. Time and again, it's really uh, what accompanies wildland fires, whether it's a grass fire or a forest fire, there's just millions, a virtual blizzard of tiny embers that are blowing in the wind and driving into the community and uh, finding small places where fires, spot fires can begin and begin to grow and spread through materials that we have generally very close to our homes, um, that uh, ignite the homes. And aside from embers, um, you know, low creeping flames that manage to to wind their way from from one object or one material to another. It happens very quickly, that's for sure. I know one of the challenges you faced when trying to figure out what happened in in, in at least how the fire spread, not how it started, but how it spread, uh, was that there weren't many people there to tell you how things had had caught fire. But you were able to figure out to some extent how that fire spread so quickly. Um, How did how did that happen? Well, we 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 looked very carefully at the the land surrounding the community of Lytton, at the wildland fuels, and we also gathered over a period of months. A, a number, a large number of images that showed us, uh, gave us evidence of where the fire was and what was igniting and when. And we, we built a chronology um, that was rather remarkable. Um, within 20 minutes of the first report of the fire, um, the fire had spread about a third of the way around the community of Lytton. It was moving on four independent pathways uh, driven by the wind and, and moving with the slope. And within half an hour, it had crossed the Trans-Canada Highway, and in less than an hour, it had spread all the way to the far end of the town. And in less than an hour and a half, there was more than 20 homes that were fully engulfed in fire. And uh, all of those homes had the ability at that point to spread fires to homes that were nearby. Uh, so that's uh, extremely fast, and uh, you know, talking to firefighters at that point, you know, within an hour, hour and a half, it would have taken more than 60 fire engines to even contain those fires, let alone stop them from spreading. So that's beyond any conceivable response capability, even for large communities. So, um, kind of our bottom line, our conclusion similar to many other studies, that if if only fewer homes had ignited to begin with, firefighters would have been much more effective. And that's our goal. You know, we, we, uh, we need to stop looking at this as a wildfire problem uh, because they're inevitable. <laughs> We're going to have more of them. Uh, we need them in our ecosystems. But uh, we need homes and communities to be more resistant to those 
ignition by those little embers and we can avoid disasters like like the Litman community has suffered and is still suffering. Yeah, you mentioned that even something like the half the Calgary Fire Department, if they'd all been happened to be right in the middle of Lytton when this all started, that they would have had trouble. Uh, perhaps not not that that exaggerated, but you know, even a big city fire depart, fire uh, fighting capacity would have had a very hard time uh, doing anything in Lytton on that day. Yeah, no, I don't. Uh... I don't disagree with you at all, and I don't think it is exaggerating that even if they were there, you know, the conditions uh, for firefighters have to be safe before they can attend fires. And those were, when that many homes are burning that close together, it's not safe or doable under those conditions. And as we know, um, in a very short time, uh, virtually all structures in the three Lytton communities were, uh, were consumed by fire. Um, very interestingly, uh, the tall trees all around the community and some right in the community, in fact, did not burn. Uh, really? The fire was moving on the ground. It was a fast-moving and very intense grass fire, uh, but uh, those many of those trees are, are still standing. That's remarkable because that's, I mean, I, I think a lot of us just don't understand how fire works uh, when it comes to those environments. Yes, and... I think in taking that that you know that actual perspective, it gives should give us a lot of hope because we control as homeowners, you and I, uh, virtually all of the factors that that allow those embers to ignite small fires that become quickly become big fires. Um, generally, we have a saying that it's small things that we can do that make a big difference, and that is the the root uh, of the the Canadian Fire Smart program which is heavily promoted here in British Columbia and, and elsewhere in Canada. I'm speaking with Alan Westhaver, who is in fact one of the co-founders of the Fire Smart program. He spent 35 years with Parks Canada. He's now a wildland urban fire consultant. He's also the co-author of a recent report on the Lytton Fire, uh, looking into uh, both uh, how quickly it spread, why, and what can be done to prevent, uh, to mitigate the risks, not just in Lytton, but in other communities across the country as well. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about some of those recommendations and just how communities can better fireproof themselves. Uh, We'll get to that after this. Ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Lytton Fire tomorrow, that deadly and destructive fire that decimated that small town in BC, we're speaking with Alan Westhaver. He spent 35 years with Parks Canada. He's a wildland urban fire consultant, which is, of course, very important when talking about fires such as the one that devastated that town, and also uh, co-authored a report on the Lytton Fire published earlier this year by the Institute for Catastrophic Loss and Reduction, which included recommendations on how to mitigate some of these risks. And that's really an interesting uh, fact here because while Lytton's circumstances, as you said, were extreme but not exceptional, uh, Lytton is certainly one of the warmest places in the country, but it can't be the only place that faces these kinds of threats, quite obviously. So what can we learn from the Lytton fire about how we should be better fireproofing our communities, specifically the ones right on the edge of uh, these grasslands and forests and so forth? Thanks, Dan. I'd like to just start briefly with a, a minute to acknowledge the the solemn anniversary of the Lytton community and to remember that the people of that those communities, their lives will be di- disrupted for many years to come and they still have a huge, huge challenges before them. A um, couple of things there, Ben. You mentioned uh, fireproofing uh, your home. I don't think there's any such thing. It, it always 
gives, in my imagination, I, I picture myself living in a cinder block bunker in the middle of the Walmart uh, parking lot, that would be fireproof. You know, instead, most of us want to enjoy and do enjoy living in a natural setting. And that's entirely possible um, if we if we take take it to heart and mitigate those risks, hopefully before we have to actually rebuild like folks in Fort McMurray and many other places. So uh, that's the choices we have. And, you know, building on our conclusions, we need to really focus on just the small area within 30 meters of our homes. Uh, This is, it's those conditions within that, what we call the home ignition zone, that really control our fate. And, and our emphasis needs to be on dealing with those little vulnerabilities vulnerabilities that exist there, you know, where embers could take root or a creeping fire could spread and bring flames into contact with our homes. So I think the, the first thing I would say in general terms is people should uh, definitely look up the FireSmart Canada website or the BC uh, FireSmart uh, website to get the whole the whole picture but generally speaking uh you know there's a few simple things that we should do and first of all a lot of those vulnerabilities relate to the kind of vegetation that we have around our homes most of it is switch plant things that we've planted or landscaped ourselves and some of those are very flammable materials and i think um if if you think like an ember you know look at those places Look critically at your property where when Amber could start a fire and carry that into contact with your home. Um, it's very important that even just a 1.5 meter non-combustion zone that surrounds our home, whether it's a walkway or green grass or gravel, um, a narrow strip that keeps those flames away that, you know, that may creep towards us, um, <clears throat> Look around your property for any accumulation of fine leaves or needles or branches that would ignite. It doesn't take high temperatures for fuel to dry out. Uh, as long as it's dry and particularly windy, um, we're, we could be in trouble. You know, look for openings either on or under uh, your home, under the eaves, uh, or your outbuildings where embers could get in and start a fire on the inside of your home. And kind of the next category is most of us have a lot of stuff around our yard, whether it's a boat or construction materials or the recycle bin. There's a thousand things that could be ignited by embers blowing into your, to your yard. Deal with those and store things properly away and you'll greatly reduce the potential for your home to ignite. And that's the kind of advantage that our firefighters really need. Um, If we do our jobs in our own backyards and work with our neighbors so that collectively communities uh, become more fire resistant, um, we can avoid these disasters. Because you've mentioned uh, previously that even the community of Lytton, because it's been left a bit untended this summer, is already under threat again to some extent, because a lot of what you've just been mentioned hasn't been done, even though there are very few structures there now that a lot of the overgrowth and so on could easily see something unfortunate happen again there. 
Well, that's right, Ben. And many of us in southern Canada and southern British Columbia live in grassy places. And grass grows very quickly, even after fires. It'll be, you know, that dry grass will be back in place and ready to burn again um, by August or even July. So uh, it's uh, it's a matter of maintaining those conditions and dealing with those accumulations of fuel sometimes more than once a year um, in order to uh, remove the hazards that exist. Yeah, I guess one of the, the the mistakes we always make is we look at something like, you know, just the high temperatures of that week in Lytton and the ferocity of that fire and think that couldn't happen elsewhere. Whereas the way you describe how that fire spread, uh, as you said, extreme, definitely extreme, but certainly not exceptional. Thank you for your advice tonight, Alan Westhaver. That's uh, been an interesting, fascinating conversation. Great to get your insight on this. Very good. Great to get the news out and good luck to uh, all our residents in the wildland urban. 